Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and this week we're going to be talking all about ponds by interviewing Neil Phillips aka the Pond Man. But first we're going to be looking at the news and wildlife centres are now no longer allowed to accept grey squirrels under an EU law. It says you have to keep them or you've got to kill them. Now I know what you're saying, that little thing that happened a couple of years ago, we all remember, you know, Brexit, uh, is this no longer applicable? Well, currently it still is. So non-native species cost the UK an estimated £1.7 billion each year. So releasing non-native species such as grey squirrels is obviously counterproductive to that. Now a DEFRA spokesman said that there are around 15,000 red squirrels left in England and this new law is designed to try and help the red squirrels. Some, however, question this, citing the bigger picture is more important Jason Gilchrist, an ecologist from the Edinburgh Napier University, states that there are 11 million pet cats in the UK, which kill around 27 million wild birds each year, and around 92 million wild prey in total. The game bird industry releases millions of non-native birds, 35 million pheasants, and 6.5 million red-legged partridges into the British countryside each year to be shot for sport. So why aren't these issues being addressed? So I can understand that, that we've got this non-native rodent that's being focused on a little bit when there's possibly wider issues. My personal opinion is, you know, I'm not against culling grey squirrels. They are a non-native pest. But the practicality of it is that there's millions and millions of grey squirrels. And without doing a concentrated effort everywhere, how do you reduce the numbers enough to make an impact? Um, I think... Concentrating culling on areas where greys and reds might interact, you know, for example, Scottish borders, Northumberland, whatever, that makes sense. But what's the point in culling grey squirrels in somewhere like the southeast of England, where there are no reds anywhere in sight? I'd be much more in favour of, say, reintroducing pine martins, which are a proven natural uh, kind of way of getting rid of grey squirrels, because pine martins hunt more on the ground, grey squirrels feed more on the ground. So where pine martins and grey squirrels coexist, the grey squirrel numbers dramatically drop. And red squirrels have coexisted with pine martins, so they know to feed more up in the trees, so they're not as predated heavily by them. So, you know, a much better option would be, let's bring pine martins back, let's get the grey squirrels down. And maybe over time, the grey squirrels will be in such low densities that reds will recolonise anyway. That's my theory anyway, but who knows. Anyway, enough about grey squirrels. Let's talk about some ponds with Neil Phillips. Here's our interview. Well, thanks for joining me, Neil. Oh, happy to be here. So I think firstly, we need to address the elephant in the room. Where did Pond Man come from? Oh, this all started. Um, I've worked in environmental education for years, uh, over a decade now. And every summer, every day, five days a week, uh, we do a pond dipping session, uh, usually twice a day. Uh, I'd usually be the one that volunteered to do it because I'm slightly obsessed. Um, and uh, I think it was a, a kid once walking past went, look, mum, it's the pond man. Because obviously they've been a few times and, and it came from there and it just kind of stuck. Uh, a colleague of mine was a lady in the woods because she used to do all of the forest school stuff and it, it kind of stuck. And then I, I just embraced it because I didn't find it offensive at all. Although I hope it's not because I smell like a pond. Rather than <laughs> there's, there's a lot yeah. worse things to be called, Neil, than pond exactly. man. So, you know, I'd count your like blessings fish boy. That. Uh, so someone I know used to get called fish boy. I can't remember who that was now. Um, no, yeah. No, Moving you. swiftly on. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose me and you are are slightly different in that we've 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 gone down quite niche um 
we're different in many yeah. ways, but we've gone down uh, a niche route for the sort of stuff we do. But what, what are the challenges of pond photography? Um, I guess if you compare it to sort of your, your sort of fish, fishy stuff, <laughs> to put the technical term, yeah. uh, you can't really get in the pond with most of it and pretty much none of it because most ponds, uh, when in a river, if you stir at the bottom, it very quickly well not very always very quickly clears but it, it does clear it was a pond you could be there all day waiting for it to clear um it's not it's, it's hard to say this without trying to big up what i do which i'm terrible at doing anyway but if you just people think it's you put the animal in a tank and you're done which occasionally it's not like a great water boatman that sits at the surface you might get away with but there's so many different things and even to this day i'll set up exactly how i did day before and I can't get reflections and refractions off the glass and stuff. You know, it's because you have to use, obviously, you know, as well, you have to use an aquarium for some of these small things. It's just not practical. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. It, and you're destroying the habitat if you're getting in a small little pond with them. Um, yeah, it's just, it's been a bit of a learning curve. Uh, yeah, one challenge was there isn't really much in literature on how to do it. And okay, you can say that about all photography that you've got to do it to get the practice to do it. You can't just read a book and do it. But I literally scoured texts. Um, I even emailed, um, oh, I forget her name now, uh, Heather Angel, who's someone in... Yes, uh, yeah, I know Heather. She actually did a bit of this. Yeah, um, I've not met her actually. I, must, I have emailed her. Um, and when I emailed her, she, she was you know, very helpful, but most of what she sent was stuff I'd kind of gleaned from elsewhere and worked out myself, yeah. but I still appreciate her getting back to me. Um, it was quite funny because I sent her something back about, because she said to use beveled glass in a, a workshop of things she wrote up um that i read and i said oh, i could get wet dry paper and just use normal glass you know to smooth off the edges and she actually put that in an article she wrote a few weeks later so i think me emailing her you know it's nice that i sort of helped out a little bit hopefully there or at least gave her an inspiration that's a bit of a big word a nudge to write something that's probably more accurate yeah it's just um i mean you must have experienced the old dust problem yeah i mean all all kinds of problems and and i would agree with you i I would because i I don't do as much as you but i do a little bit of tank photography and and i would argue that tank photography is one of the most difficult kinds of wildlife photography uh, because Mm. like you say anyone can bung an animal in a tank but to make it look natural Mm. and happy and and do it well is really tricky like it's easy to bung some big Mm. pebbles and stick some canadian palm weed in and you can spot those shots a mile off but to get it but to, as as I'm sure you do, but to get yeah. it to the point where uh, I always think it's successful when someone goes, oh, how did you take that underwater? When they don't know you did it in a tank. That's that's yeah. how I kind of know that you've done it right. And I, I would actually say underwater photography is easier because you haven't got to try and make it look, look natural because it is because you're already in there. Yeah. But to try and yeah, make it get a location and equipment. Isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. That's the trick with that one, isn't it? It's the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So I think I, I've got a hell of a lot of respect for the stuff you do, Neil, because you're you're certainly the leading person in tank photography in the UK. I know there's not a huge list, but you're, you're top of the pile. And, 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 the, uh, I do, I do. and, and the work it's you a, do is fantastic. It's a joke I make, isn't it? I sometimes mention you in it, going, oh, yeah, we're in the top 10 UK, you know, pond creature photographers. There's only six of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. You know, it's, it, take, take yeah. it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the old dilemma, isn't it? If you get something big... You've got a, like a newt, say, you've got to have a tank of a reasonable size. Um, and then it, the trick is to get a picture of it with a nice background without the tank showing. Or you're dealing with something that's so small that, I mean, I've been photographing water fleas and ostracods. And if they swim more than a centimetre away from the glass, by the time I've put all my extension tubes 
and my uh, close focusing lenses on top of the macro, the focus distance is like about two centimeters. So by the time you factor the glass in, the lens is touching the glass. And if the thing swims away from the glass, you're totally stuffed. You gotta wait, oh, it's just, it, and I don't know if you've found this when you've done it. I've, because a lot of what I did was, the children would catch something at lunchtime or uh, sorry, in the morning and in my lunch break or after the kids have gone home, I'd take my lunch break a bit later and I'd have a half hour, hour window to photograph some concrete just before I put them back. And some lunch breaks, I would fire off you know, three different creatures, get a whole nice selection, you know, enough to put, make, do a little mineral portfolio. And other days I'd stay after work for three hours trying to photograph sometimes the same creatures and every shot is a bad pose, the water's murky or, and yeah, there's a bit of a, I would say a knack to it, but there seems to be like all wildlife photography, even some luck in this sort of studio style photography. It's a bit. Yeah, no. I always go in the corner of the blooming things, don't they as well? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I, um, so for the last week or so, I've been trying to film uh, smooth newts laying eggs in a tank. And I, I got a gravid, oh, yeah. got a gravid female out of my pond. Um, put her in the tank. It's like, right, okay, off you go. And she just wouldn't, she wouldn't do it. I was sat there for ages and it is like, like being mm. in a high because you've got to wait for her to do it and waited and waited and waited and waited. Oh, yeah. And I think by the third day, um, I warmed the water up a little bit. So I wonder if it was a temperature related thing. So I thought, I'll just warm that up, see if that helps. And it seemed to trigger her. Mm. And I, I had a podcast scheduled and she started just before <laughs> I was meant to do the podcast. I was like, you little bugger. So, always um, so I, I managed to that get a few, yeah, managed to get the few shots of her. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It can be, it can, you know, pull your hair out sometimes. Yeah. You know, the lunch break could just be ending and the thing sits there and you're like, you little, but then it used to do that. You know, you go looking, I go walking in my lunch break, I used to work in the country park and I'll have five minutes to get back and a grass snake could sit in the pond and start flicking its tongue at me as if to mock me. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, the dragonfly would finally land. You're just like, you just... I, know. I was late back a few times. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you got to, you got to do it. Uh, in the grand scheme of things I'd, I'd have worked for a few lunch breaks that week anyway so uh, but it, yeah, all I mean, it all evens out yeah exactly so ponds as a habitat are are in real trouble in the uk aren't they at the moment mm. they certainly are yeah i mean there's all sorts of ponds less so than rivers for pollution i think because uh, a common misconception is that our rivers are cleaner which in many ways the worst ones are now but there's they're actually getting worse. I mean, you're familiar with the test and the, I think the test was the cleanest river in England, which I think it still is. It was the only excellent quality river. And now it's dropped down to good, which is 50% of the fauna it should have, which is pretty awful. Yeah. Um, but ponds are sheltered from that side of things. There are obviously still problems with runoff um, and getting overgrown, although an overgrown pond that dries out can be a habitat in itself. Uh, in country parks, <laughs> a pet peeve of mine, anyone that's ever, ever looked or glanced at my Facebook or Twitter feeds will know, or, or listen to my podcast, I suppose, that the problem with dogs, I worked in a country park and every pond that wasn't fenced off was seriously damaged by dogs going through because a dog goes through once, doesn't do much damage, but it takes a half hour to settle. But then another dog goes through, then another dog goes through, and that happens every day. You end up with no aquatic vegetation, like unsubmerged, that is, which seriously limits what you can get in there. And another big problem that might be coming from it is the flea treatments as well. Uh, so if you've. Yeah, of course. That's concentrated near neckties. That's the thing that are wiping out bees. And I've even seen it, uh, some of you might have seen there's a tadpole shrimps, which are the 
arguably the rarest creature in England. They're only found in one pond, possibly a second one in the New Forest. And I've seen dogs swimming around in that, and it just makes you wince. You just, what what are they putting in there? Because obviously that pond dries down, and these, these things only hatch every couple of years at most. And if that con- that near neckties just don't disappear, they just sit in the environment. And you can just imagine that over the years that could build up and cause a serious problem, especially that dogs going in it every day. So yeah, no, I do remember with because obviously I've got a dog, but but I know I know yeah. I, I remember you telling oh, yeah. me you're not, you're not a yeah. huge. Um, Huge fan I don't of think, doing that. I don't think your dog's gonna have too much near neckties <laughs> compared to a huge Labrador or something. No, like. no, she is. She to be yeah. fair, she's just little sausage dog, so she can't yeah, she can't carry that much. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, weirdly, my local park actually has a designated dog pond, hmm. and it's which weird. I'm in favour of. As yeah. long as the others are respected, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. And there is uh, there's another large lake. Um, I think it's a fishing lake, and then there's a there's another one that is kind of like the dragonfly pond where it's overgrown. Um, so I guess it's, yeah, I, I, I can see where and you're coming from. The funny thing is, I have been to a place where the dogs, um, although I'd never admit it to the dog owners, have actually helped because um, the management in the park, obviously of all the cuts, various places, management of the park never allowed for the pond stuff to be done. And they churn out a little corner, which kept the reed growth back a little bit. Uh, um, okay. so, actually get, so in in the grand scheme of things it actually helped out a little bit but obviously it'd be better if it was just managed and the dogs kept out but i think probably the biggest threat for ponds or one of the biggest threats other than being filled in um especially in gardens is invasive plants um there's one new zealand pygmy weed or crash yeah as I always I've, um, I've, I've got it in my pond neil unfortunately the so bloody stuff I've, well until very recently garden centers were selling it as oxygenator yeah. and people chuck it in the wild in the new forest it's wiped out quite a lot of good ponds because um, what it does is it, it swamps all the native vegetation and then through transpiration makes it drain out as well and it starts to because all ponds naturally go through successions so they eventually turn into bogland and then woodland and so on if you did your a-level uh, geography and yeah crazy that just swamps everything so a few things can survive in it but it hasn't got the diversity anymore uh, there's things like floating pennywort and azola which is a water fern and that's yeah that's the other one gross. i've got as well <laughs> yeah. i've got, I've the, got the, is, dirty, the dirty dozen of plants i've got and, yeah. and it's funny you say because they they were both from garden centers they were both yeah. sold as something else got them and yeah. um I'm it's illegal gonna, for them to sell those now is it well i mean so I'm, I'm waiting uh before all, all this kind of lockdown business happened i was just about to move house but that's obviously on hold at the minute but oh, yeah. when, when i um when i get my new house i'm going to drain my old pond completely yeah. dry it out um any of the inverts and stuff i'll try and you know yeah. keep or, or house somewhere else and then re refill my old pond but that's the yeah. only way i can get rid of them because oh, that, you know yeah it's a it's a i haven't found any kind of treatment to get rid of them no, and I, I don't um, think there is any as far as I'm no crashula certainly the 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 only effective treatment is to fill up your pond and dig dig another one <laughs> that oh, literally man. is the only thing they've, they've done loads of different tests and like been dye in the water to try and smother it and um i've uh, pond uh one of the ponds i work at we've dug out all the crashula from the bank uh, the problem is you dig it out and that takes out all the native stuff with it and guess which colonizes quickest? <laughs> it's the yeah, invasive. Yeah. But even Canadian palmweed, which is sold as the oxygenator, again, it just swamps all the native stuff. And it's not as good as, say, hornwort or something like that that's native. But yeah, it's, it's really depressing, actually. <laughs> about it. Even Epping Forest is the same. It's uh, There's a few ponds there where people have dumped um, 
uh, Crazy Lorin. Oh, and of course, the other threat, of course, is fish, which is a, a topic of debate between us two. Although I do agree that sort of nine spines, stickleback, and then a big pond crucian carp are fine. Yeah. But the dreaded goldfish and carp. I think it, yeah, I, I think it definitely depends on species, how big your pond is and the habitat in your pond. Exactly. I, yeah. I think if you've got predatory fish or, yeah. or goldfish are terrible carp, are you, you certainly wouldn't want perch or pike in your pond. No. Um, but in, unless in, you've got goldfish. Unless, <laughs> unless you've got, well, I, I, there, there was a nature reserve in, at Romney Marsh and they had goldfish. And I said, you know, if you want the best way, just bung a pike and you'll just have one yeah. fat pike to get rid of them. But yeah, um, but yeah I, I've got uh, nine spine sticklebacks crucians and attention in my pond um and and yeah they all you know i've got newts tadpoles they're all they're all if you've got, you know, a, if you've got a thick weedy patch you yeah can, i mean to, goldfish can't you so i not suppose I mean, encourage it <laughs> yeah and i mean to be fair my pond is it's quite heavily weeded it's not open yeah. so you know everything's got its little spaces but uh, yeah on on paper i suppose it's better without fish but that it's not you know it's not as black and white as you might hit as you might read every yeah. book will say no fish but yeah. it depends but uh, of course, once uh, well, is, you get into the whole when does a pond become a lake situation, then don't you? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just talking about in a garden sense. If yeah, you've got a lake yeah. in your garden, then you're doing all right. <laughs> yeah. So I know some people that do. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I wouldn't mind it. I wish. <laughs> um, so obviously, you do a hell of a lot of pond dipping to get subjects mm. to photograph, and and I've wondered this myself. So I want to ask you, what what's the most surprising thing that you've scooped up? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean. I've I've been there when we've caught sort of tadpoles and stuff, but I was there to catch those, so that doesn't count. Hmm, let me think. That's a good question, actually. Ah, there you go. Think of a. I mean, I've I've been on a few dips where I'm sort of going after newts, and then you get a huge diving beetle. I put one one of ones which are, um, comes on from a tweet you put earlier. I put a picture up of a great silver water beetle. Okay. I remember. This probably the second one I ever caught was on a February morning. There was ice on the pond, and I scooped through this weird ribbon like it wasn't filamentous, it's more like ribbon like algae. It grew in a clump. This pond was just sort of maturing, and over the first three years, it's quite interesting to see how the vegetation changed. It wasn't there was no blanket weed in there, but there was this weird ribbon like algae, and I swept through it, and out came a great silver water beetle which is the size of a stag beetle for those who don't know uh, it's the biggest insect in britain arguably let's not get into that it's probably the heaviest <laughs> one anyway um and yeah that was you know it's like, oh right these things should be inactive on the bottom of the pond and i've scooped it out in the top foot of water you know but probably the most surprising though with my freshwater ecology spraying on is there was a ditch a park I used to work at and it's a bit of a weird setup you had in Essex we have lots of seawalls because it's quite low land and you tend to have a borrow dike which goes along behind the seawall where they've dug out the ground to build the wall basically and to, to provide drainage but in this park there's a huge great lake which they dug out to build the seawall and there's only the seawall and three or four meters of land between a very brackish so it's a marine um, classic Essex salt marsh and this lake which is fresh water in theory but there's probably some brackish influence coming through and this is where it gets complicated there's a ditch system and the water's pumped out of that through this ditch system and I dipped there a few times and started putting out prawns 
you know, okay. like, you know shrimpy prawns like you get in the rock pool. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say shrimp because it gets confused with freshwater shrimps. Not freshwater shrimps, which are amphipods. Talk about proper, you know, decapody yeah. um, prawns. And sorry, I was going, wow, that's quite cool. Because they do occur in freshwater, but usually it's where they go upstream in a river or something like that. Which wasn't too surprising. And then I got sticklebacks out there. Again, very, you know, they go marine all the way up to freshwater. Not surprising. And then later, yeah, is a pond tray, which I don't know anyone else has ever got. Because newts are famously totally intolerant of salt. You know, you get, you know, salt runoff from a road can kill a population of them. And I had newt tadpoles, so they were breeding it. Shrimps and sticklebacks. And you're not meant to get sticklebacks with newts either, are you? No. And it's sort of like, right. And there was some fish fry in there as well. And just like, right, okay. <laughs> Someone, these, these animals haven't been reading the textbooks. So no. I had, you know, a marine creature, a marine to freshwater creature, and a pond-only creature in a ditch. And you're just like, hmm, that's interesting. If only, if only it was a great crested newt, which are on the site, that would have just sort of capped it off. But that's probably the most surprising combination I've ever had, I think. I think that's the nice thing with nature is obviously they don't yeah. read books and you know, you, you'll read these things and I'll say, you will never find this animal in this habitat or you'll, but nature surprises us. Yeah. I think most of the nature writers are now starting to learn to put typically and usually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. safer. Oh, yeah. oh, when I do my talks, I always say, yes, yes. It's very unusual to find this. And I, cause sometimes you get people misidentify things, but I've learned not to rule out just cause they, you think, well, that's not very likely. Sometimes it is. Yeah, it does. It does happen. Doesn't it? Definitely. Um, I'd probably say, well, my, mine's quite boring really, but the most mm. unusual thing I've scooped up, it was more cause it was in the wrong habitat was a tench out my local river because it's quite a fast flowing river. So, um, so I was like, what are you doing? Here? And that's, that's the one that's ended up in my pond. Cause it was, I don't know, it's about three inches long. Um, mm. And I thought, oh, I don't know if it got washed in or what. I was like, oh, you shouldn't be in there. So that's mm. happily living in my pond now. So I got a kind of lucky, uh, I, lucky escape. I did, um, uh, when, cause we, where I work, um, it's just off the river Stour. Now this is the Essex Suffolk border one. Cause it's like a 10 Stour. There's a lot. Um, and I was after the spine loach, which, do you know how many that was about five six years ago i came around to yours and uh, you that's did where yeah. I, that's where the pond man shed idea came from was i visited you I and then went it. home and said do you think i could build a shed and and my wife went yeah sounds good i went hmm let's see where have if i go um to my oh, i first asked my dad unfortunately was too unwell by the time i got it and talked to my father about building it and everyone was sort of totally game for it and i was sort of like why is everyone being so cooperative this is weird but anyway um so i built a shed but we went looking for the spine loach, didn't we? In the yeah, you, you, you came uh, by my house and, and uh, mm. I took you into my shed. <laughs> yeah. Sounds dodgy. I took yeah. you into my shed and, um, and we did some don't, photography. Don't tell our other yeah. No, no, no. They, don't, they, they, they ain't going to listen <laughs> to this podcast, Neil. Yeah, exactly. Let's we be honest. Say. Let's be honest. We'll be all right. We can keep our love yeah. secret. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you did come around and we, uh, we did get one, didn't we? I think we did find one. No, we didn't. We didn't get one. Did we not get one? No, because it was hanging over me for, for yonks because uh, I didn't realise they were in the style. I mean, it, it's the other end of Essex to me anyway. Yeah, okay. Um, and I was nine trying... spines we got, wasn't it? Sorry, we got a nine spine. Yes, that was, and that was a first for me. Yes, okay, that that's it, yeah. right. Okay, sorry. And that beautiful little perch, that was lovely. Yeah. And, they, and I managed to scoop out uh, you know, lots of mud like we were doing in, like you find them in the trench. You find them in like the, the drainage ditches going into the trench. You find yes. them. And it, there's this, it's a fairly fast flowing stream they're in, but it's quite mucky in places. So I was um, scooping away. And I've spoken to a few of the fishermen. Obviously, they're not catching them because, but they, they said they hadn't seen one there for a while or heard of one being found. I'm scooping away, scooping away. And a couple of people that have been volunteering there had never seen one. 
in this mud and I could never find any. And then we had a flood and there was a big clump of vegetation, like all twigs that got mixed out. I just put the net through it, trying to get down to the mud, but I couldn't quite reach because it's so deep. And the first thing in it was a spine loach. But I think I can top that with that site. We put in, we're looking for signal crayfish. Now the stour is full of signal crayfish. And the only thing more surprising than the fact we found no signal crayfish trapping in perfect conditions for a week, which is just weird. And they literally are 100 metres upstream and a few hundred metres downstream. There's no water voles there either, which is weird. And they're at both sides. Something weird's going on there. Um, but we pulled out one of these fish-proof crayfish traps and there was a good five-inch rough in it, which you've probably seen the pictures of. Ah, a well, I, rough. Well, I was going to ask you, actually. I, I was going to yeah. say, where did you find that rough? Because they're like gold dust. Yeah. And uh, one of the fishermen pulled one out um, not too far away from where I, that, it was in a crayfish trap and my boss had never seen one um, none of the fishermen that had been fishing there for 20 years had ever caught one <laughs> although he has caught one now so I think the floodings moved things around a bit but yeah it was just extraordinary and it was what happened was a crayfish trap was put in in one spot which is very slow flowing but just you know the length of the rope six seven foot away there's a quite a fast flowing bit and it went down there I think where it was fast flowing it got caught in it um, probably trying to swim upstream and just got caught in the trap yeah. but but it shouldn't it shouldn't catch fish this, this uh, we caught, caught, caught a roach later on as well but yeah, yeah they, so, they haven't been reading the books either then no silly rough <laughs> yeah, yeah cause it, it, was, it, was, it must be moving between because they're like a slower flowing generally. i mean again typically you read the books yeah. they do but they, they but they've got to swim through the fast flowing bits to get between them so um, yeah yeah exactly but i do like a rough beautiful purple eye if you get them in the right light they are very very pretty fish i just love those fins and and i was looking at it going blimey i look like a perch without the green and then i read the books and realized yeah yeah same same family yeah. um i feel like you've already answered this partly this question but yeah um so if people are making a wildlife pond in their garden, what, what are the do's and don'ts besides putting in lots of horrible pond weeds? Um, shallow areas. Yeah, yeah. Nat native plants uh, have shallow areas. A, because it helps all the other wildlife, you know. Um, my tadpoles are currently like basking in the shallow areas of my pond, um, which also provides a nice snack for my blackbirds <laughs> as they come in. Um, and most well most pond life is found in the the outer 10 centimeters oh well depth anyway depth wise sort of the 10 centimeters shallowest areas and i would say check out the freshwater habitats trust page there's lots of good information there um and i'm not on commission for this but uh jules how i want to say jules howard it's jules howard isn't it right the wildlife pond book i don't know if you've come across this yet jack i, I know the name jules howard but I, yeah. i'm not familiar with the book I'm not sure. I definitely got, and I'm not just saying it because it's got two of my photos in. I dare say there will be one or two of yours in there as well somewhere. Um, Is it an RSPB book? Wildlife Trust. Wildlife um, Trust. Quite possibly. I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, I think he's got most of, I, I forget, I have to go and check, but most of the names you expect in there are in there. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, and that's, he's, he's so comprehensive. He's done big ponds, small ponds, do's, don'ts, and he's done a real good job of researching it. So I was quite impressed with that which is annoying because I was going to do a book like that eventually, but it's <laughs> kind of covered that base now. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, fish, again, personal decisions on that, but don't, anything other than sticklebacks and cruising carp, I wouldn't touch. No, okay. Uh, don't introduce amphibians. Build it and they will come, as they say, um, and because of the disease risk, basically. Yeah, that's, that's probably my basic issue. Oh, and citing it. Although, that, again, that's a mess. Some people don't put it under a tree where it's going to fill with leaves like I did. 
So I can say <laughs> that's why I had to restart my pond. But uh, it's certainly under a maple. It, to be fair, when I built it, it was next to a maple that was like three inches above my hedge. And now it's next to a maple that's like 10 foot above my he- my um, fence. Sorry, not hedge, my fence <laughs> panel. So uh, that all the leaves fall in it. But because um, maple's got quite sappy leaves or sappy sap. Well, that's not a proper word, is it? So it's, <laughs> It's quite sappy when the leaves come down and okay. it pollutes the pond more than an average leaf. I suppose it's a bit of it. Lots of tannins. That's the word I'm looking for. Right. Uh, so you get kind yeah. of a, a coloured pond, do you, in the autumn? Yeah, it goes, goes brown and probably quite acidic. I haven't tested it. But um, basically everything died and then the duckweed went nuts and killed everything underneath it, which I'm, one of the duckweeds is quite invasive as well. So duckweed in itself isn't always bad, but when it takes over, it's pretty... It can be. One, a... Yeah. There's yeah. one species is non-native and sort of fairly invasive you gotta watch just don't ask me to identify it because it's <laughs> no I'm, I'm no good with plants either um yeah. so i'm going to end on this last question so okay. uh, pre- pretty much all your pond work has been uk based uh, but if you could go and do some some pond work anywhere in the world uh, where would it be and what would it what would you kind of photograph oh there's a few um i'd love to do some hemigrammets which are sort of three four inch long um, larvae of um, Dobson flies, like, like, like that massive elderfly stonefly things. Oh, right, um, okay. They look like elderfly larva, but huge and massively predatory. And of course, toe biters or giant water bugs would be good. And if, so both the states have got both of those. Oh, um, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. They look like a big yeah. uh, big water scorpion almost. Yeah, right. Yeah, or, um, yeah. Yeah, but like, a, yeah, half a tune of what's scorpion about a towel, but on steroids, basically. Yeah, yeah. Kind I of think like I a goshawk compared to a sparrowhawk kind of deal. It's like yeah. a huge, great thing. But I'd love to go after the, oh, I can't remember where they are. I've got a feeling it's Southeast Asia. Giant pond skaters. They're sort of the width of your hand. Oh, really? Yeah, huge, oh, great cool. things. Those are pretty cool. The bodies aren't that much bigger than, you know, they're probably about an inch long, like the actual body, but the huge, great leg spans on them. There's a few, there's a few uh, big pond creatures like to see and there's a f- plenty of uh, tropical dragons and stuff like helicopter damselflies I love to go off. the biggest ones going obviously all the big ones all the big stuff we don't get here but yeah I think the thing we're shortchanged on this country is um, uh, the you know the toe biters the giant water bugs and if, you know I don't think there's any in Europe but a couple in Turkey it's really weird like a really weird gap here but then we get water spiders and America don't so yeah, well, I've got some actually. Uh, the minute that I'm photographing water spiders, I got them from the oh, university nice. before lockdown, so I was able to oh, get a few um, a few images of those. But... Yeah, that last one that took me a while was getting one in the bubble web because they always built it in an awkward position. Yeah, it took and it took me yonks. And when I finally did, I'd never seen it before, and it has happened a few times since. The front of my lens reflected on the glass. I've never so when I videoed it, it was ruined by that, which was really oh. annoying. Oh, also, a little pro tip, especially if you use microphone third, so you've got less room. Don't put your finger on the um, on the sensor when you're changing lens, because when you go down to the magnification to get ostracods, you can see it all <laughs> ruins your videos. So right, that's uh, Pond Man's yeah. top tip there. Yeah, don't touch the sensor <laughs> with your finger, but do buy Olympus because when you send it off for under warranty, they clean it up perfectly for nothing and do a bloody good job. Can't fault with that, and I'm not on commission from them either. I'm just really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> my just oh. made it partly because pentax is so crap but let's not go into that yeah. <laughs> oh, oh great stuff well look neil it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you buddy um it's been great talking to you as well no worries and i will i'm sure we'll be pond dipping at some point in the future oh definitely yeah we'll have to have a catch up
That was Neil Phillips, and that brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week, and I'm going to be looking at Raynham Marshes, which is one of Neil's favourites, I believe. Now, located on the Thames Estuary in Essex, it's around 411 hectares of ancient low-lying grazing marsh. The site has a huge biodiversity of species, from things like barn owls, one of the highest density of waterfalls in the country, and peregrines make the most of the waders and the ducks. Now, I've never actually been to this reserve, but I have passed it many, many times on the London to Ashford train, so I'm dying to visit it at some point, as it's one of those RSPB reserves that just whets my appetite for the amount of wildlife that it's got. It's a former military firing range uh, before the RSPB took it over in 2000, so relatively young still. 20 years is nothing for a nature reserve, but in that time, wildlife has absolutely flourished. Now, the visitor centre is very eco, with solar panels, rainwater harvesting, natural light, and ground heating exchange systems, so it's state-of-the-art place. And, of course, in terms of facilities, you've got the shop, you've got the calf, picnic areas, car park, and the nearest train station, Perfleet, is only a 20-minute walk, so you can get there by, by public transport as well. So if you are in the Thames Estuary area, you want to go see a fantastic reserve for lots of kind of wetland species, then why not try out Rain and Masters? I know that it's somewhere that I'm going to go visit, uh, potentially this year, but at some point I will get my arse in gear and go and see uh, Rainham. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Obviously, we've had Victoria on the show, we've had Neil. Do check out the UK Wildlife Podcast. It's a great listen um, for some of the guests they get and some of the topics that they cover. Hopefully you've been enjoying my podcast, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.